Yeah, and sometimes people, they'll say, well, I like the way it looks now. And the important thing is to realize that if you don't do something, it's not going to look like that 10 years from now because the overstory is going to get uh, denser. Um, There's going to be more shade to the understory. And so things that you might have liked now are not going to be there in the future. So it's like, you know, doing some future planning for your for your stand, not just saying, well, I, you know, I kind of like it the way it is now. And, um, so just trying to set things up for the future. Welcome to the Forest Overstory with WSU Extension Forestry. The Forest Overstory is a podcast that provides insight and education into the field of forest management, helping landowners to become better stewards of their forest. The Forest Overstory is brought to you by the Society of American Foresters and the Inland Empire Chapter. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the 10th installment of the Forest Overstory podcast. Uh, it is really hard to believe we've done 10 of these already. Uh, I am Patrick Schultz. I'm going to be your sole podcast host today. Sean is taking this one off as he's busy over in Northeast Washington. But I am, however, joined by some really exciting guests. I have with me Connie Harrington and Leslie Brody. Both are researchers with the U.S. Forest Service uh, based here in Olympia. And both have long and awesome rap sheets of, of great work and great research, uh, particularly Connie, who's now retired. And I just want to mention, get it out of the way. Thank you so much for <laughs> letting me nag you out of retirement, not just for this, but for a couple of other things. Now, it seems I've been calling your number a lot in the last year or so. So I do really appreciate that. Um, and I have to admit, I, I did some digging uh, to try and find what your actual t- your titles are. Obviously, you're researchers, but a lot of times researchers have specialists or uh, uh, specialist titles like entomologist or pathologist or physiologist, ecologist, that kind of thing. And it seems like your guys' work is so diverse, I couldn't really figure out what exactly you might call yourself. So I'm hoping that you uh, will both let me know and for the listeners to know, you know, um, what you consider yourself in your, your particular field of research. Yeah. So I'll jump in. Um, I've always gone by the title of research forester. And one of the reasons that I picked that title is because it's really broad. And as you mentioned, I've been interested in a lot of different topics. And so I've kind of felt as long as I was using the research forester, um, title that it gives me kind of license to work in a lot of different subject areas. It was strategic. Um, strategic, yes. But now that I've retired, um, they call me uh, emeritus scientist, but I still think of myself as a research forester. That's funny. I always think emeritus means just semi-retired, right? Because you're still working. <laughs> I can still call your number. Yeah. My title is Forester, so I'm uh, I'm more doing more of the implementation on the ground. Uh, I do end up doing some analysis and in publications, and I have some sort of subsets that there are my own studies. And um, but I'm more even more generalized in saying that I'm a forester. <laughs> and I think foresters in general are know a little bit about a lot of topics, <laughs> which is like Connie says, it's, it's nice to have those 
uh, the more general uh, uh, title. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is an inherently interdisciplinary position. Uh, so it's good to have your toes in all the different pools. So as foresters, then as a forester title, does that so you're out there doing implementation? Is that mostly implementation of like the research projects at the field station? Yeah, exactly. So I, I was often um, supervising the field crews, developing some of the protocols and um, once back in the office, making sure everything was running smoothly. And, and like I said, very often um, doing uh, subsets of the study. Right. So for example, in this variable density thin, I was doing a lot of the vegetation work. Good. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up. You understood the, the assignment there because I wanted to segue to variable density thinning. Uh, that's really what we're here to talk about today. Uh, and we could obviously spend multiple episodes digging into all the projects that you both have been involved with, and maybe someday we will. Um, but variable density thinning, or as we'll probably shorthand it the rest of this episode, VDT, uh, is the topic of today, and that is a, a silvicultural practice that focuses on introducing diversity and complexity to a forest. That's the primary emphasis, um, particularly as a thinning mechanism, um, rather than the more traditional uniform, even spacing approach that you often see on like industry lands and things like that. So this is a, a pretty unique and uh, sort of new, I guess, interesting practice. Uh, it's often applied in uh, those conifer plantations in order to make them a little look like what uh, pre-settlement forests might have looked like with heterogeneous structure. So I, I'm wondering if uh, one of you or both of you can expand on that definition of VDT a little and talk a little bit about what it what it would actually look like on the ground. Well, I'll, I'll start off by why we got into this work. <laughs> And, and that's because there was a lot of um, concerns about old growth species, wildlife species, and whether or not there was or in the future would be suitable habitat to support all these different species. And there were quite a few wildlife biologists that worked in the same building as Leslie and I, and we had a lot of conversations with them. And one of the things that came up over and over again was... Um, that managed stands often didn't have much uh, variability either from a, a vertical structure standpoint or horizontally. That is, if you walked around in the stand, it looked the same everywhere you went. Um, and when you looked up and down, generally the, the tree crowns were taking up most of the sunshine and there wasn't a lot of um, resources available, a lot of sunshine available to the understory. And so you tended to have the trees all kind of one layer in the overstory. And so we talked about, you know, well, what kinds of things could we do? Um, how could we make it more variable? Suppose we had it, we thinned a little bit lighter here and a little bit more heavily there. And, and we kind of realized that just slightly changing the amount of thinning wasn't going to be enough, that we needed to both create gaps in the overstory that would favor some of the understory species and also uh, make it so that the crowns of the trees on the edges of the gaps uh, were longer and um, uh, you know more diverse. 
Um, but on the other hand, we wanted to have areas that were not thinned. So we call those uh, skips. We skipped over them when we were implementing the thinning. And we wanted to do that to first to protect snags. So if you had snags, often people will cut the snags for safety purposes if they're going to be in the stand doing other operations. So by having these other areas, we could keep the snags, which are really important for a lot of uh, species. So we came up with the concept of, of this uh, variable density thinning as thinning with skips and gaps. So we were making it so some areas were very dense, some areas were very open, and then we had kind of this matrix in between. Um, so that's that's what it looks like on the ground. It's uh, it's much more diverse than what we started with, and that will probably continue to expand in the future as the areas uh, develop and more of the understory and the right. midstory continue to develop. Yeah, and I and I've have been very fortunate to be able to see some of the study sites that um, you guys have done your research on and have a handful of small forest owners in Southwest Washington this last April, we hosted two workshops uh, at two state parks where you are conducting uh, some research on variable density thinning. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the origin of that. I know you also have your research at the DNR site out on the, was it the Olympic Habitat Station? I'm Olympic. Totally I'm sure. <laughs> The Olympic Habitat Development Study is on the Olympic Peninsula, and those actually are all sites on the Olympic National Forest. That's um, right. Uh, but the, the DNR has some uh, similar uh, types of projects that they've been implementing. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I washed them all together. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the uh, the projects on the parks and how those got started. Leslie, you want to jump in on that? Oh, sure. Um, uh, I well, I want to jump back a little bit and talk about how the variable density thin looks on the ground, uh, but I want to compare it to the, I don't know, the, what I would call the natural state, what some others might call, you know, old growth, um, you know, something that's been uh, not managed, has a lot of different um, uh, both small and large disturbances that have happened to it. So it becomes very variable. You know, there's fire and root rot and landslides and insect attacks. And, you know, there's all these little things going on so that you have a lot of different mixtures of ages and species and places where the trees are big, the shrubs are small, and then vice versa. It's all, it's all mixed up. Um, and then when you looked at the managed stands, um, which are managed to maximize timber production, um, the way to do that is to make it more uniform. And so that's what's been going on in past management. So uh, using variable density thin helps it sort of nudge it along that more variable trajectory um, to develop habitat. So um, having said all that, um, they wanted to do that uh, on some state parklands. So they contacted us to help us, to help them uh, plan it and lay it out because um, we had done the work on the Olympic Habitat Development Study. Um, so that was quite different. We haven't actually done any research at the state parks. Um, so uh, it was the, at the uh, Olympic Habitat Development Study where we 
had laid out a grid system and we had a lot of overlapping uh, or layering of different studies um, at the state parks. Uh, it was pretty much a simple layout. Uh, we wanted to do it for both forest health and to add a little diversity, but um, had a big aesthetic component because these were highly used areas close to campgrounds. There was a, a horse trail in one um, and the planned campground. So it was going to get a lot of heavy uh, public use and um, a lot of people were going to see it. So it was a chance for, you know, forest education and, um, but also just, we wanted to, they wanted to make it look, look better and to make it healthier. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was mistaken in calling it research, but it was a great opportunity to apply yeah. what you had been researching elsewhere. And I think it's really interesting that it was the parks of all, you know, of all landowners, it was a park, uh, that ultimately was, you know, one of the first to try at scale, I guess, outside of the the research projects, at least that I'm aware of. It could be other people that have tried that. Um, but it's really interesting because, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about today is the, the motivations that you touched on it a little bit already. It was the recreation and aesthetic value of variable density thinning. You know, you had a forest there, a couple forests that needed a treatment of some kind. But they wanted to place, you know, additional emphasis on something like parks or sorry, something like recreation and aesthetic value, which I would argue VDT does an excellent job of. Um, but what other kind of motivations would someone have, a, you know, say, for instance, a small forest landowner, uh, which is our primary audience in applying something like this? Well, I think one of the interesting things about working with the state parks is um, we worked with Rob Fimble, who was the state ecologist, and some of the people in the parks were not quite sure they wanted to jump in with a thinning project in their park um, because they thought it looked okay as it was. And what Rob wanted to emphasize as an ecologist was the long-term development of the area. <laughs> and so um, he really wanted to get people to think about, well, it's not going to look exactly like this 20 years from now, even if you like the way it looks now, we really need to think right. about what's it going to look like in the future. And um, it's going to become less and less interesting from, from a uh, recreation standpoint, but also it would be less desirable from a forest health and wildlife standpoint. Right. And a lot of people that, you know, are recreating in the parks, they, they like to be able to see, um, you know, some variety in their walks and be able to see some birds. And, and I think they like to support the fact that, you know, these parklands are, are providing, um, you know, benefit to wildlife species as, as well as to people. So I think initially there was some resistance, but the more people thought about it and the more they saw what could be done, um, there was a lot of support for, you know, what we could do with variable density thinning. It wasn't going to look like something that um, an industrial landowner would do. And from that standpoint, I think it's very similar to what some of the interests are for small landowners in that they don't want to have these um, very large uniform practices, whether it's clear cutting or whether it's um, a uniform or mechanized thinning. They, they, they like the idea of of having um, some diversity in their ownership where 
they can walk around and see different things. And, and you can favor different areas. So if you have an area where there's some um, shrubs that might produce edible berries or something, you might decide you were going to do a little more thinning there or have a gap there that would, would favor something. So you've got the opportunity to lay things out in a very uh, specific fashion to favor like we would favor often big leaf maple trees because they produce a lot of seed that many wildlife species access um, and cherry and many of the shrubs. Um, and that's something that I think appeals to a lot of uh, small landowners. They, they like to think of, they're not just producing wood on their land, but they're producing other resources also. Right. I, I could definitely confirm that for sure. And I think it's one of the reasons that, um, well, the workshops that, that, uh, we did and Leslie, you're such a big help with that. Um, they were really well attended. Um, you know, especially the one that was down in Castle Rock at Sequest State Park and people were really excited, uh, to have this sort of, it, I always joke, it's kind of like having your trees and cutting them too. Um, it's not really quite that wonderful, you know, but it is, it's about as close as you're going to get. Uh, and, and landowners do have to harvest sometimes, whether it's for forest health or, you know, tax programs. Um, th- you know, they need a, a, a little income from time to time. And this is a really great way to do it at a scale and sort of on their terms and emphasizing things other than, than timber management, which we know is often a little bit lower on the list for small forest owners. Yeah, like to jump in too, is saying that there's, you know, there are different kinds of variable density fittings. Um, there's, there's been a lot of different sort of systems proposed and some of them are quite, um, I don't know, regimented is the right word, but you know, they're very specific about this is the spacing and this is the, this is the, um, the pattern that you make with the trees and this, you know, the gaps. Uh, but what's nice about skips and gaps is like you said, you can be very specific and, um, you know, and I think that's especially suited to small landowners because they have parts of their property that mean something to them. There's a sentimental value. I think someone touched on this in one of the the field tours. It's like his grandkids thought of this section as Jurassic Park. And so that would be (laughs) perhaps the section that you wouldn't log and would be a skip, right? So there there will be, it's very adaptable. And I think that's what appealed to state parks as well. Yeah, and I and I don't want to speak for them, but if, speaking to to one of the managers of the parks there, I, they had mentioned that they were considering doing it, uh, doing more of it on uh, other parks and on the the two parks that we toured as well. So I think you may or may not have sold them. <laughs> so I did want to talk because you kind of mentioned Leslie. You know, it's it can look a lot of different ways. There's so much flexibility, which is another reason it's such a, a good option for small forest owners. But I'm kind of curious if either of you, because uh, this is a statewide podcast for a you know, statewide audience, um, have had any experience doing anything similar on the east side or any of the eastern Washington dry forests or have any thoughts on how that might look uh, over there? Or maybe it's more or less the same. Well, we've mostly done our research on the west side, um, but I think the concept of variable density thinning can be um, applied anywhere. But what will really be different is how some of the tree species respond. So, for example, if you have some tree species that are shade tolerant, um, 
they can do well in an understory or a midstory position. Uh, but if you happen to have a forest that doesn't have very many shade tolerant species, probably what's going to benefit the most from your, um, your, your gaps are going to be shrubs, understory species, and to some degree, the, the actual crowns of the overstory trees around the gaps. So um, things are going to look different and not just east side, west side, but also whether you're working with a lot of um, um, Sitka spruce or, you know, um, hemlock or red cedar or how many hardwoods you have. Um, but one thing that we've found in several of our projects when we've been going out looking is that often there's more variation out on a site than people think about. It can be 95% one species, but you can go in with a variable density thinning and really uh, emphasize that other 5%. You know, you can really um, make it so that those hardwood species or some of the shrubs or things are, are really favored to an extent that might not have been obvious at all if you just casually looked at the area and said, oh, it's all Douglas fir. Um, but there really are some other plants out there that that you can really bring along with your variable density thinning. Yeah, that, I mean, and I kind of want to return to the the experiences that you've had, uh, in particular, lessons learned from both the research and applying this. What are the you know, having maybe been one of the first people to actually do this, I'm sure you've learned quite a bit. What are like the top three, top five kind of things to consider um, when you're actually applying this on the ground? I know that's a super vague question, but I'm just curious if there's like anything, anything that you really learned the hard way doing. <laughs> well, I think we've been pretty lucky that way, actually. Uh, oh, that's um, good. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, we, we did, when we were working with uh, um, implementing a, a type of variable density thinning in some younger stands, um, one of the people that we were working with wanted us to flag all the way around the edge of all of the gaps, as opposed to just marking the center tree. And I made right. some rough calculation of how many miles of flagging that would take. <laughs> and, and then they, they agreed that we could just flag the the center tree. Uh, another thing that we we did have to think about, and sometimes um, you know, sometimes people would would want us to push it more one way or the other, is that we don't want the skips and gaps to be right next to each other, or they um, kind of dilute the effect. So if you have a gap right next to a skip, then the the skip, the unthinned area, ends up getting more light, uh, more impact from um, from the gap than maybe you had in mind. So, you know, that was something we had to keep in mind. And we also had to work on what the logging system was going to be. So if it was going to be um, a cable system, you had to think about how your skips and gaps would be implemented in relation to the actual equipment that would be used to do the harvesting as opposed to just having a piece of paper and, you know, drawing it and making it look nice. Right. Um, yeah. I think one of the other lessons learned was, um, and we anticipated this is that, um, is the, 
uh, invasive species coming in after the logging, you know, the amount of disturbance, <clears throat> you know, and <clears throat> along with that, um, you know, damage to the residual, the trees that you're leaving. Um, and, um, you know, so we were concerned about that. So that has to do with the timing and how, how the actual, you know, the plan is, as, as Connie said, the extraction. But I think as you're comparing this to a select cut, which I think a lot of um, small forest landowners might be tempted to do because they don't want to disturb very much. Um, what's nice about this system is that there are the gaps that you can fall the trees into. So uh, sure. in some respects, there's, there's less damage because there are these little holes in the forest that they, you know, can be used as a, as a logging uh, st staging area. You know, they're, they're small gaps, but they work quite well and they also help you get some volume out. Uh, so we were pleasantly surprised at the, how, how little damage there was to the, to the residual stand. Um, and we did get some blowdown in one of our stands, but uh, it, was, it was less than we might have guessed. Overall, it was one of the concerns. Yeah, and I mean, sure, that's somewhat inevitable. Even almost with with any harvesting uh, operation, you also, you're you're going to be at risk of some blowdown at some scale, um, for sure. But I, I like what you said about the benefits of gaps, even practically speaking. Uh, so I've I've seen pictures of some people that have done something like VDT, you know, at least approaching it. And they keep some of those gaps open as, uh, you know, future um, landings or like picnic spots and, and things like that. It's not exactly giving the wildlife benefits that we want, uh, but it's interesting because I think it's so funny about this practice is that uh, a lot of us, you know, even the old traditional um, forest owners to the new ones see gaps in a canopy and we just want to fill it. We just want to fill it up and, and reclose that canopy. But I've, I'm coming to learn and coming to accept like just how important it is to have that structural diversity and having a gap that's just shrubs, ideally native, right? Then you're constantly fighting the blackberries in there. But it's just so benef beneficial to wildlife. And um, we had Ken Bevis uh, on this podcast. He was also at those workshops kind of speaking to that idea that, you know, uh, a forest is a forest, even if there are gaps in the canopy, and those gaps in the canopy are really important. Um, so it's just something that I, that I find really interesting, and I've, I've been encouraging landowners to think about managing gaps long term, you know, without that dense forest overstory. Yeah, I have to say that was one of our pleasant surprises in doing the, the vegetation. Uh, it's like you talked about the managing the you know, like the blackberry in the gaps, uh, you know, when we were at year three, which is our peak of uh, uh, non-native species uh, after, you know, three years after treatment. And I remember we put duct tape on our rain gear and was like crawled under the blackberries to do the vegetation surveys. Um, you know, we had to put our armor on basically. <laughs> right. um, it was bad, um, but most of it disappeared. Um, you know, by year 17, the presence of non-native species is pretty ne negligible. Last time we did a survey. Sure. So, um, you know, there was a bit of canopy closure. A lot of the uh, mid-story trees were growing in and, um, and the native shrubs came back. And so um, the fact that those non-native species were so short-lived was a, was a pleasant surprise. I think, though, that many of those non-native species um, 
are shade intolerant. So having the smaller gaps in the shade, as you mentioned, the other trees getting established, the understory, midstory trees. Um, But if we had larger gaps that were maintained open for a longer period of time, I think you would have more trouble with some of those species. But it's also possible that you can have smaller gaps and then expand on them in the future. So um, not necessarily all in one, in all directions at once, but maybe go in one direction. So you're still um, preserving those longer crowns that have been developing along around the gaps. Uh, So there's a lot of different ways when you go in and you do a variable density thinning, it may be a one and done operation, or it may be you go in at a young age and you start to kind of nudge the stand into a more variable um, configuration, but you might want to go back in 15 years later or, um, and do another thinning. And you may expand some of the gaps. You might let some of them close. You might put some new ones in. Um, I mean, one nice thing about variable density thinning, particularly if you do it more than once, is you know, you've got a lot of options. So depending on things that have developed, you can do additional thinning or say, oh, no, this has developed really nicely. We're going to stay away from this area in this right. next round of operations. Yeah, yeah. And thank you for clarifying on the size of the, the gaps. Uh, it could have got some landowners in trouble by going and opening up a one acre gap and <laughs> expecting it to be to be right and beautiful. Yes. But a lot of the, the gaps that you done in your research, if I remember right, are quite small. Even I think what was it smaller than the height of the individual tree at the center of the gap. So I mean, it might be like 50, 60 feet. At, yeah, at, they were the ones at the um, habitat development study are only twenty right. meters by twenty meters. Yeah, they were pretty small. Quite small. But we. We were going into some stands that were um, 60, 70, 80 years old and had not previously been thinned, many of them. And so we were concerned about wind throw. So we wanted to keep the gaps on the small side. Um, And the same thing was true in the state parks. Those areas had not been thinned. So we didn't want the gaps to get uh, too large. But on the other hand, you can make the thinning in between the gaps either lighter or heavier depending on um, yeah you know what kind of understory species you have and what you're trying to accomplish i mean it sounds kind of wishy-washy but it really it really there's a lot of flexibility and matching what you do to what you have and what you'd like to have in the future right and it and i do want to stress too i just um especially some of these overstocked you know especially west side Washington, we're getting overstocked dug fir plantations. It's a very common thing to come upon. Uh, it doesn't take a whole lot to get that understory response. Um, and if I'm sure the parks won't mind me calling uh, them out, the uh, Sequest State Park and then Nisqually State Park in Eatonville uh, were the two sites that we toured for the workshops. And you can go and see firsthand, what was it, seven, eight years after um, after the project, after the 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 thinning was done and you could see it was really good um, shrub response from that compared to what it was previously. And I think even Sequest has a couple pictures of what it looked like before and what it looked like after. Uh, yeah. yeah. And sometimes people 
they'll say, well, I like the way it looks now. And the important thing is to realize that if you don't do something, it's not going to look like that 10 years from now. Exactly. Because the overstory is going to get uh, denser. Um, there's going to be more shade to the understory. And so things that you might have liked now are not going to be there in the future. So it's like, you know, doing some future planning for your, for your stand, not just saying, well, I, you know, I kind of like it the way it is now. And yeah. So just trying to set things up for the future. I think a lot of what looks good at those parks, though, having visited them recently, was even just picking, I don't know, one or two shrubs when when you're selecting your gap locations, you know, something to release. Um, you right. know, they've got their roots established, you know, even if they don't look like too much <laughs> when you're, you're choosing your gap locations, they get a little bit of light and they just take off because they have, uh, you know, they got established, like I say, established root systems and they're just ready to go. They've been sort of hanging out in the, in the understory, waiting for something to happen and, and uh, making those little gaps makes it happen for them. Yeah. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit and then kind of, kind of look forward, um, you know, having done some research and some, application in the field i wonder you know what else do we need to learn about vdt uh in order for it to be applied more broadly or do you feel we have a pretty good sense of how to do this on the ground and sort of the long-term management impacts of it is there anything that's kind of still burning on your mind like in terms of research question i'd like to look a bit a bit more at the branch developments you know we talk about some uh, how the gaps um, allows for those longer crowns, and you know, we need those uh, larger branches as nesting platforms for some species. And so we haven't. Um, I think we see it happening, but we haven't really quantified that yet. And I'd like to, I'd like to see a little bit more of that. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think we also, although we've had. Um, several different types of stands that we've worked in. We certainly haven't worked in, you know, all the forest types in Washington or uh, in the Northwest. And so I think there could be some, some slight variations of what we've done um, in our West side stands um, in East side stands and, and maybe in some higher elevation stands. So um, I don't think that's a reason not to do things. Uh, operationally, uh, but just recognize that you have to think a little bit more about, okay, well, what am I trying to accomplish and do I have the right species here? Um, you know, let, let me try and, and um, favor a species that is, as Leslie said, it's already established or one that's, that's would take advantage of the light. Um, uh, but but I, I don't think that it's, that we can't do variable density thinning in, in, in lots of locations. It's that we would just do it a little bit differently in different locations. Sure. Yeah. I think yeah. often it's uh, you know, if you're considering doing a variable density thin as opposed to a traditional thin, which with the, uh, you know, primary objective being timber production, you know, there's that economic consideration. Uh, we haven't really, you know, that's that's kind of what you're comparing it to and so uh quantifying that and you know trying to understand the economic decision to you know what is your economic cost uh, uh for deciding on one type of thin or one type of management 
versus another. Um, you know, it's a it's an important consideration for for some. Yeah, I will. I will just mention that when we had some of these different projects, that some of the contractors who had not worked with variable density thinning before, yeah, um, sometimes underestimated the time it was going to take for them to do certain aspects of the thinning or or to do things in a way, for example, in many of the areas, the no uh, thinning areas were also no entry areas. So we didn't want the logging equipment to go through the, the skip areas. It doesn't have to be that way. It depends on what your soil is and what the plants are. But sometimes you put your skip in an area because you're trying to favor some understory plants and you don't want the logging equipment to go through those skips. And if the logger's not used to having to go around those areas, they can underestimate how long it's going to take them uh, to do the job. But all of the areas that we've worked with, a contractor bid on the job. And, um, you know, it's not like the landowner was paying to have the thinning done. They they actually, you know, did get um, timber sale receipts from, from doing these practices. But I think some of the contractors uh, learned some lessons that would make them perhaps more efficient or more or less interested in doing the practices in the, in the future. But I think that's, you know, part of the learning curve with anything new, you can underestimate some problems and overestimate others. And um, it's, it's just that experience um, quotient that's important. And I'm really glad that, um, well, both of you brought up the, the economics of it because that is important to consider. I mean, you're right, Connie. I mean, in most circumstances that I've heard of, at least, um, you know, landowners are at least breaking even or making some money, but certainly it is not, um, well, because you're de-emphasizing timber production, right? And you're emphasizing other things in place to that, like wildlife habitat and recreation aesthetics and all these things we've been talking about. So it's not necessarily going to be as lucrative as some of your traditional thinning or other harvesting operations. But again, for the small forest owner, which te- you know typically has timber production down, you know maybe not even in the top ten motivations uh, on their list or in their stewardship plans, that this really um, it kind of hits it right on the head for them in, in identifying a practice that can really encourage all of those motivations or all of those um, uh, benefits to their their forest management. Yeah, and I would say too, when we first started working on the, these projects in the mid 1990s, um, everyone didn't have a, a smartphone that had all kinds of apps on it where they could <laughs> they, they could you know have these maps and you know air photos and be able to you know have a track to see where they went you know if they were walking through their area. Um, and I think there's an opportunity to be able to use both people's um, experiences in their forests, but also to be able to use technology if they want to be able to lay out how they think it might work. Um, You know, I think the hardest thing, it's almost like doing a remodel on your house. Are you just going to tell someone, well, I just want it to look nicer (laughs) or (laughs) are you going to be very detailed with, you know, a list of, well, I'd like to, you know, release, 
so many maple trees and I'd like to make sure that this, you know, group of cedar over here was such and so. And, um, you know, the more, the more the landowner can think about what they have and what they'd like it to look like, probably the easier it's going to be to, you know, work with a, a contractor to, to do the work. Yeah, that's a, a really, really great point that you brought up that I do want to stress is that because this is a, you know, it's certainly a flexible practice like we talked about, but it is complex and you have to consider all of these different variables in terms of uh, operations, but, you know, also considering riparian buffers and all this stuff. Even a traditional harvest, we generally recommend that forest owners hire a consulting forester. Something as complex like this, it is really important to work with a forester, but also to find a forester that's working with you and is out on the ground with you, asking you, where do you think a skip should go or a gap should go and that kind of thing and taking your finances into consideration, which is going to determine the size of those gaps and things like that. So it's important to find uh, a forester that's going to work with you on that. And ideally one that has some experience, which is probably relatively limited out there, but I, I do know they exist. Um, but I, I think it's uh, it would be beneficial in the long run for sure to have that added support from a forester. Yeah. And I'll just give a little plug that um, Leslie and I wrote up a report on um, variable density thinning, and it has some examples and some things in there that can both help the landowners think about things, but it can also help foresters, um, you know, see how they could use some of our experience in their implementation. Great. Well, um, I, I think we've about touched on everything. I, I'm, I'm so grateful for having you here. Um, obviously, we could spend a lot more time talking about variable density thinning and the nitty gritty of it. And uh, we have, right? <laughs> we've done workshops on this uh, and hope to do some more in the future. But I, I do... Um, First, before we wrap up, I want to let the the landowners listening know that, you know, as County mentioned, there are, are resources out there to read into this a little more. Uh, I believe we have the publication that you mentioned on our website at forestry.wsu.edu. Um, and we have a, a, or a library of publications there that's pretty easy to find. I also want to plug our Forest Stewardship University, our online Forest Stewardship University, which you can also find on our website. Uh, and there is a module on variable density thinning coming. It is currently in peer review. So uh, keep an eye out for that, hopefully before the end of the year. And then, you know, there should be more opportunities to learn about this because it's, um, you know, it's becoming more popular and, and landowners are taking more interest in it. So we want to meet that demand. Um, but before I wrap up, you know, is there any anything else that you guys wanted to share? Anything we uh, didn't touch on? Uh, remaining thoughts, that kind of thing? Yeah, I guess I, I would just say that um, I think when we actually get people out on the ground and they see these projects, they get pretty enthusiastic about them. And right. and often you have people that say, oh, I'm not really interested in thinning. It's okay the way it is. And then they get out and they see what the area looks like several years after the thinning. And um, so I just encourage people to take advantage of, of um you know, going on field trips or, or, you know, seeing, seeing pictures or just looking at things because, 
you know, there's nothing like using your eyes to, <laughs> to help you see what, what really can be done. Yeah, I think that's an excellent suggestion. I was really, uh, you know, it's always surprising how soon, you know, it looks so raw right after, you know, you've had a bit of a locking up, logging operation, but, you know, even just the next year, as you said, Patrick, it just, um, it's amazing how fast those, uh, the understory plants respond and the shrubs, uh, it's, it's, it's important to see that. And, um, Right. really appreciate it. It's active management is rewarded, right? Yeah. In the long run. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Well, we will call it there. Uh, thank you again uh, so much for, for joining us for this uh, 10th episode of Forest Overstory podcast. Uh, and we will catch you at the next one.